The Lanham Act is a federal statute that governs trademarks, service marks, and unfair competition. It was passed by Congress on July 5th, 1946, and then signed into law by President Harry S. Truman. That's 75 years, so happy birthday, Lanham Act. But the Act's passage was just the beginning. Trademark laws have, in the decades since, been added and amended to address changes in technology, innovation, and other factors potentially affecting interests of trademark and service mark holders. In this edition of the Jones Day Talks Women in IP series, Meredith Wilkes, Anna Raymer, and Carrie Kidrowski discuss recent landmark cases involving trademark dilution, internet domain names, and willful infringement. They'll also talk about the bold changes brought about by the Trademark Modernization Act of 2020. Stick around. This is going to be good. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Meredith Wilkes co-leads Jones Day's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She is a lead trial lawyer that has focused on high-stakes trademark, trade dress, trade secret, false advertising, and design patent litigation leading matters for global brands and federal and state courts throughout the United States for more than 20 years. Meredith also chairs the firm's Women in IP initiative. Anna Raymer works with clients to design and implement worldwide trademark protection programs, strengthen their IP portfolios, and resolve domestic and international trademark disputes. She has significant experience managing international brands for clients and assists clients in policing, enforcing, and defending their intellectual property rights worldwide. Anna is also co-author of O'Connor's Federal Intellectual Property Codes Plus 2020-2021. And Carrie Kodrowski has more than 16 years of brand protection and enforcement experience and has had particular success in resolving online trademark infringement issues and in domain name dispute arbitration actions before the World Intellectual Property Organization. Carrie is lead pro bono trademark counsel for several global nonprofit organizations, such as Room to Read, in which underserved individuals receive literacy and educational support. Meredith, Anna, Carrie, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Interesting topic today. And Meredith, we've been doing Women in IP podcasts for going on three years now. But I think this program's a little different. What we're here to talk about is the lookout 75th birthday, if you will, of the Lanham Act. Now, the Lanham Act is the federal statute that governs trademarks, service marks, and unfair competition. Passed by Congress July 5th, 1946. President Truman signed it into law, and it took effect exactly one year later. Okay, so 75 years ago, Meredith, here's where I'm coming from. I'm actually surprised it took that long because 75 years ago is not ancient history. There's a lot of commercial activity. Certainly there were trademark issues out there in the U.S. economy, even if they weren't calling them that. So what happened, I guess, in 1946? Where'd the momentum come from? What prompted Congress to move on serious trademark legislation at that time? Where were we? So first off, Dave, I've got to say the Lanham Act's looking pretty good for 75. I don't know. I'm, I'm holding up pretty well. <laughs> Although there's been a nip and tuck here and there we'll talk about in a minute. But you're right, mostly I agree. Mostly I agree. Sure. To be sure. sure to be sure. Yeah. The Lanham Act was not signed into law until after World War II. And Congress was a little bit busy, not able to get to what is near and dear to my heart and Carrie's heart and Anna's heart for sure. And it's interesting because there were other trademark laws on the books prior to the Lanham Act that all met with various limitations or or even constitutional failures, quite frankly, in the Reconstruction era and late 1800s, 1870s. We tried to have a federal scheme regulating trademarks, and it was deemed 
unconstitutional because it relied on Article One, Section 8 that speaks only to patents and to copyrights. And so it's, it's Fritz Lanham um, became bound and determined to get a, a federal scheme in place that regulated marks, in part because post-New Deal and then in particular post-World War II, this massive rise in consumerism and growth. And we started to see products being differentiated through advertising. And I think then from that, you see a desire to protect both businesses and consumers. And so I think that's when we got motivated to get really moving and get something on the books at, after World War II. That makes sense. And, and people are starting to recognize the value of what we now consider a trademark of those things. It's a post-war boom in consumerism certainly ties them well. And that, that certainly makes sense. Madison Avenue wins again, I guess. All right. Let's talk about some key developments in U.S. trademark law. There was the Federal Trademark Dilution Act. Now, that didn't come until 1996. But before talking specifics, Meredith, we talked about these subjects in different podcasts before. But tell me, what's the difference between trademark infringement and trademark dilution? What's the difference here? You're right, Dave. There is a difference. When we're looking at claims for trademark infringement, we are trying to protect the goodwill associated with a brand from deceptive use. The standard would be confusing similarity. Dilution, on the other hand, is talking about it a different concept, which is that the value of the brand is being diminished, not by deceptive use, but by purely by use. So to prevail on your dilution claim, you don't have to prove confusing similarity. You simply have to just prove use. And so hmm. Because that standard is a little bit lower, almost strict liability in the trademark world, it's mm -hmm. reserved for a very, very special type of mark. And it has to be a famous mark to be able to bring a dilution claim. And since we're doing history here, it was interesting for me to learn that even though the federal dilution statute wasn't passed until 1996, it's actually been a product of state laws throughout the United States. And the earliest one that we can find was in Massachusetts in 1947. So the concept of dilution as a claim is, is much older than its inclusion in the Lanham Act. If I'm starting a soft drink company and I have a red and white label, with white scripted lettering, and from a distance, you're like, oh, that's Coca-Cola. Is that trademark dilution potentially? Or am I, I thinking think of something? I think our good friends at the Coca-Cola company would definitely say that they, it is. <laughs> they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like that. I was just in Atlanta recently. I'll tell you, Coca-Cola runs that town. It's something else. Okay, good example. Okay, but staying with the Dilution Act, this law would ultimately need to be rewritten by Congress after, forgive me for reading here, Mosley v. v. Secret Catalog, Inc. That was in 2003. Anna, tell us what happened there. Sure. Thanks, Dave. So that's a case in which Victoria's Secret challenged the use of the mark Victor's Little Secret, which was being used by an adult novelty store, and they challenged that based on dilution grounds. Now, at that time, there was a circuit split, so it was whether there was an actual dilution standard that must be established or whether there was a, a presumption of harm that arose from a likelihood of dilution standard. And the Supreme Court resolved that split in the Victoria's Secret case by holding that actual dilution was required under the 1996 Act. So you actually needed this objective proof that there was an um, actual injury to the value of the mark in order to have this claim for dilution. 
Now, as you mentioned, this led to an amendment of the Lanham Act, one of these nips and tucks that you were talking about earlier, through the 2006 Trademark Dilution Revision Act. And by that amendment, all we need to show now is the likelihood of dilution rather than the actual dilution. So that amendment changed that decision, the Victoria's Secret decision. One other thing I wanted to mention, too, that act did was to note that a relevant mark must be famous. So before you had this idea of niche fame for a trademark, but that amendment made clear that it needs to be a mark that's widely recognized by the general consuming public like one we would think of as a household name in order to assert a dilution claim. When I need to be careful about throwing terms around that I'm not sure I'm using properly, but let's say you prove actual dilution and maybe I'm getting to an area that's beyond the scope of this conversation. How do you prove damages as it were? Do they just make people stop? Okay, stop doing that. You're diluting their trademark or are there monetary damages sometimes? There can be monetary damages as well. I mean, certainly an injunction is what a lot of trademark owners would um, like to have and make sure that someone ceases using the mark. But you can show monetary damages as well. All right, real good. Let's go to Carrie for a second. Carrie, thanks again for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Another interesting development in trademark law was the Anti-Cyber Squatting Consumer Act. Boy, that rolls right off your tongue. ACPA. Yes. Now, this was back in 1999. Internet was real new to most of us, and I guess I'm dating myself, but I, I can, personally, I remember a time before the internet, but the, the internet was new. Talk about the potential issues with domain names and how that act came about, Carrie. Certainly. So talking about the 90s, it's really difficult for us to believe today, but then very few companies actually had an online presence. And in the 90s, there was an explosion of registrations of famous marks. Mm -hmm. And a lot of individuals tried to capitalize on securing domain names that also corresponded to a company's brand or their trademark. So as time has gone on, it's no longer a luxury, but it's a corporate necessity to have an online presence. Mm -hmm. Some domain names were being registered for the purpose of ransoming or hijacking them. Right. Um, so as the internet exploded, some very savvy individuals decided to register tons, you know, hundreds of domain names that corresponded to famous brands. And so the Anti-Cybersquatting Consumer Protection Act gave another cause of action to basically try to stop that practice. For an obvious example, I couldn't go out there and cybersquat on Ford Motor or McDonald's probably. That's what that's, we're trying to right. prevent, right? Okay. Exactly. And, and really within two weeks of the law being enacted in 1999, a couple examples that most of us can relate to, the America's Cup team from New Zealand filed an ACPA action to recover, and recover meaning to have the domain name transferred to the rightful trademark owner, americascup.com. Harvard uh, filed an ACPA action to recover harvard-lawschool.com. Wow. And then even the NFL filed an action under the ACPA to recover the nfltoday.com domain name. It's an act that provides for statutory damages ranging from 1000 to 100000 per domain name mm -hmm. and also the potential transfer or cancellation of a domain name. So it's really just another tool for trademark enforcement in the online sphere kind of makes you wonder 
I mean, no one would have envisioned this, right? When mm-hmm. trademark laws were being written in 1946 and moving forward right. into the early 90s, no one thought about a domain name. Kind of makes you wonder what could be down the road. And and, and trademark law, and Meredith and I have talked dozens of times, it's always evolving, always changing, always surprising me at least, but kind of makes you wonder something that dramatic could be on the horizon we don't even know about yet. So this is an interesting, interesting part of the law. Let's talk about trade dress cases, Meredith. I've heard that term. In fact, it's probably come up in some of our previous programs, but can you explain exactly what trade dress refers to? Sure, David. We have talked about trade dress. I sometimes like to refer to it, and maybe I've said this to you before, is dressing up your trademark. Trade dress is, it is a type of trademark. The broad scope of the Lanham Act reaches what we call trade dress, and it really encompasses the total image of a product or a service. And so if you think you think about it in terms of some sort of visual attribute that indicates source. And so this is very, very broad. It can be color, it can be shape, it can be design, and it can be a combination of color, shape, and design. But what's critical is that the elements cannot be functional and the owner has to demonstrate that the design or the color has acquired what we call secondary meaning, meaning that consumers have to associate it with the maker of stuff. And one of the more famous ones that we talk about all the time, mm-hmm. made by our friends down in Atlanta, that shape of the Coca-Cola bottle. That's sure. the, you know the classic example of trade dress protection. What about the Tide box? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing laundry last night, but I was just saying that that yellow, that orange, those black, that, that just, I mean, you can see that box from, you know, 100 feet away, you know that's tied, right? Is that an example of some renegade detergent manufacturer thought we're going to trick somebody or at least have them look at our product? They couldn't do that, right? Well, you know, you raise so many interesting points with that question, Dave, as you always do. Color, of course, is protected and can be protected as trade dress. The orange and blue is certainly distinctive. You recognize that from far, far away, right? And that's what yeah. brand owners are trying to do when they seek to protect their trade dress, right? They're, they're trying to call the consumer's attention to their stuff on the shelf. And, and so you can do that with great combinations of color. There is a tension between brand owners and companies that we would call private labels. And you see this when you go into CVS or, or the grocery store where you see the branded product and then right next to it that picks up on some of the colors or some of the same shape, you see the private label product. So there is right. always that tension between the branded good and how much of the overall look appearance can somebody else use to draw your attention to their product instead. So it is, it's evolving constantly and very exciting, very fun area of practice. And Everybody's for, well, I hope everybody's for fair competition and free markets on stuff, but you go into the pharmacy, right? And you see a, a very popular allergy medication and then half a shelf over is a similar product and it's boxed almost identically. And I, I almost called you about this once, by the way, Meredith, seriously, I did, because I thought, what am I missing here? This just looks, doesn't look like something should happen, but this is, this is trade dress law. So, all right, let's talk about a specific case. Uh, let's go to Carrie. Tell us what happened in Qualitex v. Jacobson. Sure thing. So in Qualitex versus Jacobson, Qualitex was the plaintiff here, and Qualitex used a green-gold color for dry-cleaning press pads. And the defendant, Jacobson, their rival, began selling pads of a similar color. So Qualitex did not like this, and they sued Jacobson, and they also registered a trademark for the green-gold color. 
So interesting, the district court ruled in favor of Qualitex, but the Ninth Circuit overturned this, basically saying that color was not registrable. But the Supreme Court in Qualitex versus Jacobson was having none of that, frankly. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court found that color could be a trademark, as long as the color is non-functional, meaning that it can't serve an essential purpose of the article, the products or services. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so colors are symbols. I thought maybe a couple other examples might be useful here. Yeah. Uh, there's the red soles on shoes for Louboutin and pink insulation for Owens Corning actually owns sure. that. Wolf owns the red knobs on appliances. And we're all familiar, especially during the pandemic with uh, at-home deliveries, UPS owns the color brown for for their trucks. One other thing I thought was interesting. So John Deere tried to register, well, actually did obtain a registration for a color combination. So the John Deere tractors are, of course, green and yellow. They couldn't register green alone because green was considered functional because it's really a symbol of vegetation, but they were mm-hmm. successful in registering the green and green and yellow color. So that's just another example of how the Lanham Act has evolved over time, and, and now we have the protection for colors. Interesting. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, because Meredith used the term earlier. When you say functional, okay, the green is functional, right? I guess it can't be functional to warrant protection. What does that term mean in this context, functional? Sure thing. And if Meredith, you'd like to add anything, please do. But essentially, if some color is functional, that means it has some essential uh, feature or role in the provision of services or the color of the product. Again, the example I gave regarding green, the green symbol is related to vegetation. So John Deere was not able to register green alone. Uh, Meredith, do you have anything to add? I think you nailed it, Carrie. What the Supreme Court teaches us is, as you've said, that functionality, that sort of element is met if either one, it's necessary, the claimed element is necessary to the use or purpose of the article, or two, if it affects the cost or quality, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, there's this tension between giving somebody what is uh, could be a, a lifelong monopoly and, and for years and years and years beyond that versus enabling fair competition. And so mm-hmm. this becomes an issue, particularly when you're talking about design elements, right? We want people to be able to make stuff that works well. And so we don't want yeah. to give somebody a, a monopoly forever on that and colors, right? There's only so many colors out there. So we don't want to give someone too much rights that would then somehow hinder competition. So the functionality doctrine sort of strives to balance those two competing interests. I see. John Deere had been using that color combination for a long, long time, right? Did that have something to do with it? If it had been a a new tractor and lawnmower company, could they have pulled that off? Or did John Deere have to demonstrate, look, we've been in business since whenever, and we've been using this for this long, or is that irrelevant? No, it certainly is relevant, and that's a good example. So the color can only be registrable if it also shows secondary meaning in the marketplace. And secondary meaning is only achieved through long-term use in the marketplace. You'd have to show like a high volume of advertising, high expenditures, uh, advertising, and that consumers recognize 
the color as being a symbol for the product or that service. So it's not something, uh, if John Deere just started using the color yesterday and tried to register it today, that they would not be able to do so. Wouldn't happen. Okay. Let's go back to Anna. Now, you guys were kind enough. You send me notes to put an outline together, and this is how we come up with our program and decide what we're going to keep, what we're going to remove, how this podcast takes shape. But I was fascinated by this case. Two pesos, Inc., be Taco Cabana, Inc. This had to do with the design element of a restaurant. If I've got that correctly, Anna, what happened? And is there a takeaway here? That's exactly right. These were competing fast food Mexican restaurants um, that were in Texas at the time. Um, And Taco Cabana claimed trade dress infringement basically on the festive appearance and decor of its restaurants. And the jury hearing the case determined that this decor was inherently distinctive. So the question before the Supreme Court was whether trade dress was capable of protection as a trademark, whether under this inherently distinctive standard or whether you had to show acquired distinctiveness through secondary meaning, as Carrie was just talking about with the color marks. Of course, you also have to show your trade dress as non-functional, as Carrie just mentioned, too. So what the Supreme Court held was that trade dress that is inherently distinctive is protectable without a showing of secondary meaning because it's capable of identifying products and services as coming from a specific source. So that when you went into these Taco Cabana restaurants, you knew that you were in a Taco Cabana because it had this inherently distinctive decoration that you associated with Taco Cabana. Just a note, though, Dave, you know, from what Meredith said earlier, it's not across the board in connection with trade dress. When you have product design trade dress, that is going to require secondary meaning. The Supreme Court in 2000, its decision, Walmart v. Samara Brothers, limited this ruling on inherent distinctiveness such that it's only to product packaging trade dress or trade dress that's akin to that, which they considered the restaurants to be. So if it's going to be product design trade dress, it's not going to be inherently distinctive. You're always going to have to make that showing of secondary meaning, the types of evidence that Carrie was just discussing in terms of color. Okay. You can see how this would would play out in the marketplace. I mean, there there are certain restaurants and, and other entities, buildings out there that you don't even need to see the sign. You know what that is, right? It's recognizable. And that's where it takes on that kind of meeting and that kind of significance. Is that correct? Or am I? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, Meredith, back to you. Now, we've talked about Rummick Fasteners, Inc. v. Fossil, Inc. on at least two prior programs. A great case. Recent case, but definitely warrants another mention. The Supreme Court ruled that a plaintiff in a trademark infringement lawsuit is not required to demonstrate that the defendant willfully infringed on their trademark to claim lost profit damages. Meredith, like I said, we've talked about this twice, so I'm not trying to bore our our audience, but this was a, a significant case. Why was it such a game changer? It really is a big deal, Dave. You're right. The Justice Gorsuch opinion makes it very clear that A plaintiff need not prove willfulness to get to a defendant's profits in a trademark infringement action, and that would also, by extension, apply to a false advertising case. 15 U.S.C. 1117, where the damages provision for the Lanham Act is, doesn't say anything about willfulness in the plain language of Section A, which is what we're talking about here for trademark infringement and false advertising. There's nothing in the language of of A that ever required willfulness, yet... Over time, there was a dead circuit split 
50% of the circuits were requiring willfulness and 50% were not in order to disgorge a defendant's profits. And so finally, the Supreme Court uh, weighed in on it and said it is not a necessary prerequisite. It is still a factor to be considered because disgorgement is something that happens in equity. And so the conduct at issue is something that a court in equity would certainly be permitted to consider, but it's not an absolute prerequisite. And so if for no other reason gives litigants a more certainty in terms of what the law is, because here really, yeah. I mean, it would lend itself to a lot of forum shopping. And so we've, we've removed that element from the uncertainty for trademark litigants. I'm trying to remember lower courts were split. How long did this drag on? Had this been in and out of courts for years? It seems to me like this meandered on forever, didn't it? It did go on for quite some time because there was some revision to the Lanham Act that modified provisions to the dilution statute that Anna was talking about earlier, but left intact the remedies for infringement and false advertising. So this has been something that's been rather uncertain for over a decade. We've seen a lot of Supreme Court work on the Lanham Act in the last several years or weighing in on trademark cases in the last several years. And so I, I think people realized that it was just a matter of time before it got to the court, especially when you started to see the 50-50 circuit split. That's when you really do need uh, someone to come in and break the tie, so to speak. Sure, sure. Sounds like it was high time. That's for certain. All right. Trademark Modernization Act of 2020 incorporated into the last December's COVID-19 relief bill, which, you know, that's how it happened, folks, right? <laughs> now, this brought about significant changes to trademark law, and there have been changes to both trademark prosecution and litigation. So let's talk about this. Carrie, first you, some of the changes were driven by the high number of filings from China. Explain that for us and what some of the changes are in terms of trademark prosecution and the registration process. Sure thing. And this is such a problem, but help is on the way with the Trademark mm. Modernization Act. So we're, we're really thrilled that this is going to be another uh, way for us to combat some of the issues related to extreme levels of trademark filings from China. As I uh, give you a little stat here, between 2013 and 2017, there was a 1200% increase in filings from China. And this is remarkable. A large number of those were paid for by only three credit cards. Wait, wait, say that again? Three, yes. three credit yes, cards. Yes, a large number of the applications filed from individuals from China or companies from China were paid for by only three credit cards. So what's happening here? Yeah. In, in China, uh, the government actually has mandated that state sponsored enterprises and state-owned enterprises have to increase their foreign trademark filings by 50%. So there's government mandates that are requiring Chinese companies to file for foreign trademarks. And another reason is really that's to stifle competition and to try to clutter the U.S. trademark office. But also hmm. in China, subsidies are paid to individuals and companies to obtain trademark registrations in the U.S. And we're talking thousands of trademark applications. Sure. And many of these are fraudulent. You know, there, obviously there are some legitimate ones, but the vast majority are likely fraudulent. And what we've seen are doctored photos showing trademarks on products where the actual trademark doesn't exist on the product, uh -huh. uh, you know, manipulation through uh, various computer programs trying to show use. And all of this is really curtailing legitimate businesses' ability to obtain trademark registrations for their goods and services. 
Sure, sure. Who, who? I shouldn't go down this rabbit hole, but I can't help myself. Okay. Who, who polices this sort of thing? Who regulates? Who watches this? Who calls foul? Or do you have to litigate this civilly? How does this? Who stops this? Or who should be stopping this? Well, right now, we're hoping that Congress has made some dent here. It's really difficult. Sometimes you have to battle this on a one-case, one-off basis. But, you know, lobbying for congressional uh, action, and that's kind of happened in this context. And then there's some procedures that have come into place through the TMA that will be helpful for trademark owners. One of those, and I'll just talk about a couple related to the prosecution. So in the prosecution of a trademark application, it can take well over a year to obtain a trademark registration. But part of the delays are related to the length of time that an applicant is allowed to have to respond to a trademark refusal. And in that instance, a trademark refusal could be issued about three to four months after you file. The refusal then gives you, right now, six months to respond. So during that time, you have businesses attempting to introduce products to the marketplace. And there's so much delay and so much stalling uh, that happens. And so through the TMA, this six-month period will be reduced Mm -hmm. and will be up to the examiner from the United States Patent and Trademark Office, it could be as short as two months, up to six months, but there's more leeway now. And that's really going to help move applications along. Sure, sure. Forms are good. All right, let's go back to Anna for a second. Anna, I've got a note here about the changes to the cancellation actions. What's happening with those? Sure. Thanks, Dave. Uh, As Carrie was just mentioning, there is a very large problem with respect to uh, applications being registered when there actually hasn't been legitimate use. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the ways to attack that is by having new procedures that are focused on canceling registrations um, for marks that haven't been used. And there's going to be two different types of these cancellation proceedings, which are meant to be faster, so more efficient, cheaper, um, in order to really focus on canceling either the entire registration or the certain goods and services that haven't been in use. So the first type is uh, referred to as expungement, and this is for marks that have never been used. And what you will be able to do is file this type of proceeding three to 10 years after a mark has registered. You're not going to have that 10-year limit for a couple of years, but it will be after 10 years. And then if you still want to cancel based on that, it has never been used, then it's actually a new ground for a cancellation proceeding for a traditional cancellation proceeding, not this fast track. And the second type, Dave, is going to be a re-examination. And this is for marks that weren't used prior to the claim of use in commerce. So that's that goes to some of the types of applications Carrie was just talking about, that maybe they're doctored specimens, or mm-hmm. they claimed use when they actually were not using the mark. Perhaps it was they were using it in connection with one good, but not the 50 in the application, for example. So you have to in this proceeding will be that there's either not use based on the application date if you claimed use in commerce as of that date, or that there wasn't use at the time that you claimed filed your statement of use, or that your deadline expired to file that statement of use and that you didn't have use at that time. And this proceeding is going to be within the first five years of the trademark being registered, you'll be able to do that. So this is going to take effect December 27th, and it's going to apply to all the marks that were registered before or after that date. In December 27th of this year? 
Yes, that'll be a year after the enactment of the um, Trademark Modernization Act. And so we're mm-hmm. still getting some procedures in place, the regulations in place, exactly how these proceedings are going to go. We'll uh, be sure and circle back with you on that later this year as that December 27th date comes around. We ought to talk again and, and kind of explore some of these issues and hear what clients are asking about and, and where things are, are moving on that. So we will make a note and make sure we, we come back to you on that, Anna. Meredith, stay on this for a second. Talk about what else here is significant. I know there were some significant changes to district court litigation. What's most significant here? So, Dave, unlike the changes that Anna and Carrie were talking about that go into effect next year, and for sure you'll be hearing more from them on that and guidance for our clients in that respect, but the changes to district court litigation go into effect now. They are in effect. And the the major change was this. The Supreme Court held, held in eBay versus Merck Exchange that an injunction doesn't automatically issue upon a finding of infringement. So meaning that just because you prove that someone infringed your intellectual property right doesn't automatically entitle you to an injunction, that the traditional principles of equity were going to apply and we're not going to have a hard and fast rule. But eBay versus Merck Exchange was a patent infringement case, not a trademark infringement case. And there are really big differences between the rights protected by the patent laws and those protected by the trademark laws and the evils sort of that the the different monopolies are are designed to remedy or at least prevent. Notwithstanding, over time, some courts started to import the eBay holding into trademark infringement cases. And so what the Trademark Modernization Act does is it resets and says, no, the Supreme Court's holding an eBay in a patent infringement case does not apply in a trademark infringement case. So there can be a presumption and is a presumption of irreparable harm upon a showing of infringement. It's important to note, though, one thing that we have told clients through our publications and otherwise is that, to be sure, it restores the presumption, but it is a rebuttable presumption. So we have to keep that in mind, regardless of which side of the V that you're on when dealing with that sort of situation. Interesting. And you know what? This has all been interesting. Great, great program today. Happy birthday, Lanham Act, 75 years old. We went over some significant cases that remain relevant, will be for the foreseeable future. So this was a great, great job today, panel. Thank you so much. Meredith, before we sign off, I would be remiss, and we don't like to be remiss. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what's going on with the Women in IP Initiative? Obviously, 2020 was an unusual year, and maybe the initiative was limited in terms of what it could do, but things are looking up, I think. So is there anything on the horizon, events we ought to be hearing about or the audience might want to know about? Well, funny you should ask, Dave. Ah. <laughs> There's still time to register for our June 30th program, which is still going to be virtual. Eventually, we'll all get back in the same room and be able to, to be in the same place together. So yeah, I was going to say, you're not quitting the road like some fed-up rock star or something. You will take these Women <laughs> IP events out again at some point, right? <laughs> That's right. We will take the show back on the road, to be sure. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. This is a, just going to be a fantastic program. It's Leader of the Brand. And this is an advocacy program. It's going to talk with some industry experts and hear their views on how to be a better advocate, whether that's in the courtroom or in the boardroom or with your team. It's it's all about using your power of persuasion more effectively and learning some tips and best practices from leaders in the space. And so we're really looking forward to that program. It's going to be fantastic. We will continue to do our offerings in the fall. We'll have a brand update in September. And in November, we'll do a patent update. 
Whether or not those are in person remains to be seen, but you can always email us at womeninip at jonesday.com, and we're happy to share with you all the product offerings, all the the recordings, everything that we have available, and all of our, our different programming opportunities. So you can get in contact with us that way. Womeninip at jonesday.com. That's the email address. Also, we'll make sure the contact information and the invitation to the June 30th event is on the introductory page of this podcast so people have the information there too if needed so it's all good great show today thank you thank you so much uh, meredith anna carrie we'll do this again soon but thanks so much for being here today thanks for having us thank you dave for complete bios and contact information for meredith anna and carrie visit jonesday.com and while you're there be sure to visit the firm's insights page where you'll find more podcasts, videos, publications, newsletters, and other interesting content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Jones Day Talks is produced by Tom Condolis. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.